This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Today on the show is part two of my Live from the UN interview series. These were interviews I conducted as part of Talk Radio Day, which is an annual event at the United Nations in which talk radio hosts from around the country are invited to the United Nations to interview UN officials and other hangers-on around the UN. Uh, what you are about to hear is a series of several interviews, mostly with U.N. secretariat officials. That is, these are international civil servants who work in very specific areas of the U.N. You'll hear from officials that work in disarmament, that work to promote the rights of LGBT communities around the world, that work to promote the rights of Palestinian refugees in the Middle East. It's a wide range of officials I interview, including someone who's helping to renovate the United Nations building, the aging United Nations building. So stay tuned. It was great to hear a diversity of voices. And remember, you can subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes, and I heartily recommend that you do so you don't miss an episode. You can find every episode on UN Dispatch, and you can always get in touch with me via my website, markleongoldberg.com, or on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. And let me know what topics you think I should cover and who you think I should interview. Here it is, live at the UN, Volume 2. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Yeah, I'm Richard Wright. I'm the director of the representative office of UNRWA. This is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine refugees in the Near East. So it's basically the agency that takes care of and looks after Palestine refugees. And most of the Palestinian refugees are, of course, in, in Palestine itself, but there is a broader refugee crisis, uh, particularly with the, the Palestinian refugees in Syria. I mean, that photo from earlier this year, yeah, yeah. Uh, was it in Yarmouk County? Yes, is that yes, what it is? Yes. Can you, uh, just describe how that photo came to be and what that photo is. Yeah, that, uh, uh, you're quite right to point to this has become a sort of symbol of, uh, a sort of emblem, if you like, of the tragedy that's affected not just uh, Palestine refugees but the whole of Syria uh, because it represents the situation, uh, uh, if you like, of people who are in besieged areas or hard-to-reach areas. And actually what the photo showed was people queuing in a, in a very devastated part of uh, you know, southwest Damascus called Yamuk. This is a sort of triangular area. It's not actually a, a refugee camp as such. It's a sort of triangular bordered area, but it's, it's, it's completely shut off. Um, and these people were queuing for food, and it's a genuine photograph, and, it, uh, you know, it, it went viral, and we even had a, a campaign... Uh, uh, here in, in the U.S. and in Tokyo to draw attention to the plight of these people. Um, 
how many Palestinian refugees are in need of humanitarian assistance in Syria right now? Well, everybody. Um, so what? 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 Well, the numbers are we about tens of thousands or hundreds no, of thousands no, 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 or, no, no, or, no, or no, how many? No, let me tell you exactly. Yeah. You know, the normal. If one thinks of normal times, i.e., before the current conflict, there were about 540,000 Palestinian refugees in Syria, and I think it's important to say because this is often lost in this sort of maelstrom of violence and, and, and conflict that exists there now, that actually these refugees were relatively well treated by the Syrian authorities. So they had rights, uh, uh, actually more rights than they had in, in other uh, areas in which we operate. So of the 540,000, say about 80,000 have left, I mean, and most of them to, to the Lebanon, and it's of course to the great uh, credit of Lebanon that they allowed many people in. This has become much more difficult in recent months, but there are about so about 53,000 of those 80,000 fled to Lebanon, about 15,000 or so to Jordan, others to Egypt, uh, even Gaza. Can you imagine more um, thousand and more to Gaza? And so, so uh, refugees, Palestinian refugees, fleeing again from who, who are fleeing Syria to Gaza. Yeah. Well, they're small numbers, but it's, a, it's probably about a thousand or a thousand plus. How, do, how does that journey even happen? Well, I mean, they probably, probably through, through Syria, through sorry, through um, through probably Lebanon, Egypt, and uh, I mean, that's the only way they could have possibly got, huh. arrived. So, um, so of the people who, who remain, coming back to your original question, there are about 440,000, 450,000 Palestinian refugees who are still in Syria, and they all need, I mean, pretty, you know, they all need help, period. And so uh, this is a massive challenge for us, and, you know, at the same time, we want to continue providing our normal services where we can, which is health and education. Particularly, you know, we're very concerned, obviously, about children you know, having disruption in their education. We've managed by hook or by crook and by getting loaning government schools and by using other, you know, uh, other ways of giving educational assistance to so that most children uh, who are still there are getting some education. But, I mean, this is a very, very destabilized situation. And I think the other point, important point to bear in mind is that psychologically, I mean, these were refugees. They're now those, you know, half of them have become displaced, uh, 270,000 roughly and more. Others have left, you know, so they're becoming refugees or displaced persons for the second, third, even fourth time. So, you know, this is immensely damaging. Um, I, was in, I was in Lebanon uh, a few months ago and I went to see Palestine refugees from Syria who are in the Lebanon. About half of them are in the existing camps in Lebanon, which are already very overcrowded. And, you know, the, the conditions under which these people are living is, is just really mortifying, frankly, and, and, and you know, very disturbing. Um, I was particularly struck by the sort of... Uh, you always had the impression that some of the members of the household, had, like the whole life had been sucked out of them, you know, they just had no hope, they couldn't work. And, you know, these people were, these people were doing things like, um, you know... <coughs> truck drivers or plasterers, electricians. You know, they, were, they had normal working lives, but these have been completely disrupted. So they all need help, and you know we give them assistance uh, for housing, uh, for food, for about for all members of the household. It's about a 
dollar a day it doesn't sound very much but it's still nonetheless an important contributor to their welfare but you know it is an immensely tragic situation of course for all of Syria but uh, the Palestine refugee community has been very very badly impacted by this. uh, How concerned are you for the situation in Iraq? I know there are not an insignificant number of Palestinian refugees in Iraq still. Yeah I mean this is outside you know the (coughs) UNRWA operates in five areas Gaza, West Bank, Syria, Lebanon uh, and Jordan so Iraq is outside our area of operations. So if there are, you know, Palestinian refugees, or, and, and there certainly are some people there, would be, you know, their welfare would be uh, in the hands of, our, you know, the larger UNHCR, which is the agency that deals with non-Palestinians. So, you know, this is not, uh, if you like, within our uh, our mandate to, to, to work there. But, but obviously, I mean, the situation, I mean, in, you know, in Iraq and Syria, when we read about it in newspapers, we're not directly involved with this because we're an agency that is essentially an agency of a humanitarian agency we're providing humanitarian development services for our population but you know <laughs> to the extent that this is causing more disruption uh, of our community uh, of course we're, we're, we're very concerned now you're not uh, UNRWA is not a political organization right. um, but I guess how concerned are you for the breakdown of the peace talks between Israel and Palestine uh, like what uh, consequences do you foresee yeah. might uh, result from the fact that there simply was no, you know, no viable, no, that, that, that the peace talks sort of ended, that the John Kerry-led peace talks ended in, in failure? Well, you know, we exist. Our agency exists to look after Palestine refugees, which are the, the, those original refugees from 1948-49, about 750,000, who are now, the community is now uh, over 5 million, and we exist because there is no peace settlement. I mean, and obviously we, like the whole of the United Nations, wants to see a solution to this uh, conflict that has lasted almost 65 years. Um, so we're very concerned, obviously, that, uh, you know, the situation now <coughs> is that, you know, it's in the talks are on hold. Um, because, you know, without a peace settlement, then there's no, going to be no final solution to Palestine refugees. We, we exist to until the plight of the refugees is solved through um, peace negotiations in accordance with UN resolution, the particular resolution 194. So, um, you know, we are, we are concerned, and all it does is, you know, perpetuate and prolong this situation in the West Bank and Gaza, which is so debilitating, frankly, for, for the refugee community. In Gaza, you know, Gaza uh, is being is subject to a blockade by by Israel. Israel controls everything that goes in and out of, of Gaza. The biggest problem of all, frankly, is there's no exports coming from Gaza. It used to be quite normal trade between Gaza and Israel and the West Bank, which is now stopped. And the consequence is that you know there's no work. And, and uh, I mean, just to give you an example, you know, unemployment in Gaza is now well over 40 percent for our refugee community, even higher and for women. Uh, our women refugees, or graduates from our schools, you know, 85% and more are without work. And this is because there's no trade. So what happens? People are then thrown onto the, into the arms of the, uh, you know, humanitarian agencies in Gaza, which is essentially UNRWA, uh, WFP, uh, uh, dealing, WFP dealing with the other, with the non-refugees. So to give you one statistic that is frequently cited, in, in the year 2000, 80,000 people in Gaza, 80,000 Palestine refugees were dependent 
dependent on food aid. Now the figure is 800,000. That's a tenfold increase in the number of people who need foods from us in order to survive. I mean, it's a really tragic situation. It's a man-made situation. So, you know, we and the United Nations as a whole wants to see an end to this blockade, wants to see, you know, trade resume so that, you know, business can be restarted in Gaza. And, you know, the West Bank is also the... We're very concerned about the situation there. We've seen an upsurge in violence in the camps. I mean, last year there were 40 incidences of live fire by the Israeli Defense Forces in our camps. We've seen displacement, settlement violence, you know, as well as the, the restrictions uh, <coughs> operating in the West Bank, in the territory, which are preventing, you know, again, socioeconomic development uh, of our refugee community. So all these, you know, these, the non-solution uh, to the Israel-Palestine problem just perpetuates these issues. And, you know, I think we all hope and want to see uh, a solution, but... <coughs> You know, the, the current stalling and the current negotiations, if I can put it that way, is, is, is not very encouraging. We hope one hopes it will be resumed soon. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. Okay. George Papianis, and I'm the uh, external relations liaison here in, uh, at, at UNESCO in the United States, um, and uh, happy to be joining you. Thank you. So it has now been two years, over two years, since the United States last paid its dues to UNESCO. Indeed. It doesn't... Now, I think some of the listeners may be aware, but in case they're not, the reason the United States is not... Well, you described the reason the United States is not uh, paying its dues to UNESCO, and then we'll, we'll have a conversation about the consequences of that. So that, so, so that the audience is, uh, can be brought up to speed, it's, it's actually it's quite simple. I mean, if you we have a general conference, like the UN New York as a general assembly. It's the member states who are essentially the equivalent of shareholders. And the, um, the shareholders took a vote at the end of 2011 that they were going to uh, uh, accept an application from the Palestinian Authority to join UNESCO with full membership rights. And that occurred, and it was a majority, more than a, a majority vote of the member states to, uh, to do that. And in the United States, pre-existing from the early 90s, there was a law on the books that was uh, written when Yasser Arafat was alive. And that law very simply said that if you are, uh, if you're a UN or an international organization that admits the Palestinians with full membership rights, then you will essentially lose your U.S. funding if the U.S. is a funder. What's important that the audience understand is that the United States has not pulled out of UNESCO. We have an ambassador. In fact, that ambassador was confirmed just last week. The new ambassador to UNESCO is Crystal Nixon of California. And, um, and so what we have, though, however, is the fact that the U.S. position at UNESCO is now one in which the member states look at the U.S. and say, you're not paying your dues. So the U.S. Uh, did not pay its dues, has not paid its dues for two years, lost its vote last year. And that UNESCO. was not punitive. I, I want to make sure the well, audience... It's statutory, right? Exactly. Right. I mean, that happens at most, you know, if you don't pay up, you don't have a say. No, if, you're, if you're a member at the golf club, you don't pay your dues. You don't get to, to, to play golf. I mean, if, um, so, you know, but the, as you said, this is a sort of a congressional action. We're now into an election year uh, where obviously this is like a hot button issue that's tied up, unfortunately, with like the Arab Israeli dispute. Uh, and it doesn't look like that this 
congressional, um, it doesn't look like this decision by Congress that they made back in the 90s will be reversed anytime soon. We're not asking for a reversal, and this is important. What, what, the, what, 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 what certain members of Congress and what the administration has been calling for is a waiver. Right. All that means is that the president waives for whatever period he determines is, is important an element of this foreign, of, the, of this particular law. If you look at a foreign affairs authorization bill in which this law was contained back in 1991, I think it was, um, that, that uh, bill contains all of these, you know, one-line directives, two-line directives, and then they also include, many of them include this language that says, you know, should the president deem it's in the national interest, national security interest, he can waive this, this, this law. And it's, it's, it's a very, as you said, it's a common, you know, these things are common. Commonly written into. Commonly written into it. However, it's not written into this, and, con- and and to add a waiver would require an act of Congress. Yes, it would. And it does not look as if Congress is anywhere close to including this waiver. So, given that situation, given the fact that the U.S. hasn't paid dues in several years, it doesn't look like they're going to be paying dues anytime soon because such an action will require Congress to, to do something. They aren't going to do anything. I guess is UNESCO sort of embracing the sort of post-American future? Well, on the funding side, yes. I mean, we've already passed a budget that is 22% less than what the UNESCO budget was when, you know, when the United States was a full contributor. So we have, and we've, you know, we've, fro- we've froze a number of positions, a number of positions were eliminated, and we're still in the process of, of dealing with the aftermath. I mean, we're still carrying a deficit that we're trying to, to deal with in, in this current biennium. And it has to be. I mean, there's no question. It's, it, it is a smaller organization. Um, I mean, it lost a quarter of its funding. Just yes, about. just I mean, about a quarter. It's funding to any organization. Any organization just kind of dried up, right? And and it was unfortunate when it happened. The U.S. was due to pay its 2011 dues, and it did not. And so we were already expecting it, so we were automatically had red ink. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess how is UNESCO coping? Because again, it looks as if they're not going to get U.S. funding anywhere in, in the near term. I mean, you know, Congress isn't going to do anything, so how is UNESCO coping with this reduction, and you know, will these cuts seem to be permanent? Well, you know, we were in the middle of a of, of a reform, or at the you know, starting a reform process at, at UNESCO when this happened, that was already underway with the, with Director General Bokovac. Um, obviously, you don't want to go through a reform process then underneath this kind of uh, situation where, you know, you've got the sort of Damocles that's kind of unhinged in a sense, and now it's kind of swinging in the wind while you're trying to navigate all of these different pieces, and you're it's, you've got red ink rising up around. Your, your ankles and up your calves, and it, it's not looking very pretty. Um, you know, it's 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 a process that we're that we're engaged in right now, and it's about setting priorities and and making sure that we're putting our resources where we can deliver, and that's going to be an ongoing process. But what's what's more, I think, important here is that we not write off the United States. You know. 
UNESCO. I guess why why not play the devil's advocate? I mean, yes, the United States still has an ambassador there. The ambassador doesn't have a vote, and the U.S. isn't paying. So, if I were like a UNESCO manager, I would think the U.S. is not going to join anytime soon. Why not write them off? Well, US may, the U.S. may not be paying. We're already there. We're not joining. Right. right. But it's about paying. Um, I th- I think that that indeed there is no question that member states are kind of look a little bit at, at, at the U.S. and say, hey, it's time for you to, to make a decision here. You know, you're, you're at the table. We want you at the table. And this is, I think, an important thing. I think the vast majority of member states want the U.S. to be there because they depend on the U.S. to be part of the important debates and policy decisions that happen at UNESCO. And we're an international organization. You can't, you know, you can't say that, okay, we're going to let the U.S. kind of go off on its own and and then, you know, work out the rest of the issues by ourselves. You know, that does mean you're going to be missing something. I'm not saying that the outcomes are going to be bad. What I'm saying is that the, the kind of discussion that you're going to have is probably going to be a very different discussion discussion without the U.S. present and f- at full volume. So it is, it is a very delicate situation right now, and we're at, we're at a point, and what we're hopeful, and not more than hopeful, I think there's a realistic situation here where the president is nominated and, and has had confirmed an ambassador who will be taking a seat. If the president is committed to that, then I believe the, commi- the president is also committed to working with the, with the House. House and Senate leadership to find a way to get a waiver and restore funding. Otherwise, why send an ambassador to UNESCO? Um, it's in our, our remaining uh, few moments. What? Um, just give a few examples of what UNESCO does uh, that sort of would intersect pretty directly with U.S. national interests. Just to give, I think, listeners a sense, because I think UNESCO is something that everyone's heard of, uh, but not necessarily everyone knows the actual work of UNESCO. Well, you know, from a homeland security point of view, I would talk about very, very much so. The fact that, and this is an easy one, the tsunami early warning system. UNESCO manages that system. And we work with the United States when we do disaster risk reduction drills and incorporate 19 countries in the North Atlantic, or I'm sorry, in the Caribbean, or 39 countries in the North Atlantic. UNESCO manages and and operates the, the World Heritage Program, which we have 21 World Heritage Sites in the United States. In Texas, the San Antonio missions, the Spanish missions of San Antonio, were are being, have been nominated for... The Alamo. The Alamo is one of them. Have been nominated for World Heritage. It'll come up next year cycle. What's important to know is that in Texas, this wasn't a UNESCO study. They did an economic impact study in Texas in, for San Antonio. The organization that did that study, the Harbinger Group, came back with dramatic numbers about the economic impact of World Heritage Inscription, over $100 million in direct economic activity in the San Antonio and Bear County it's area. Like tourism. It's, it's, about, it's about extending to a thousand new jobs created just as a result of the of the 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 um, um, 
the investment of money, the incoming money that's going to be needed in order to handle the additional visitation, millions of dollars in additional hotel and tax revenue. That's about jobs. And when we talk about, about, about our external security issues, you know, one of the things that it's our responsibility to deal with is on the illicit trafficking of cultural objects. And one might say, well, what does that have to do with our national security? Well, earlier this week, National Geographic came out with an incredible story about the extremist groups in Iraq and Syria who are digging up cultural objects and moving them onto the black market in order to get you know money to fuel their operations. We're the ones who are finding it. That's UNESCO's work. That's in America's national security interests. Uh, well, George, thank you again for speaking with me. Mark, it's always a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank you. Hi, Mark. I'm uh, Valer Mantels. I'm with the uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction Branch in the Office for Disarmament Affairs. Started off in 2000, spent 10 years in exile in Geneva, and then came back uh, now, about two years ago. And, and now you're here. So, you know, the UN is not formally part of the P5 plus one countries that are working with Iran to strike a deal over their nuclear program. It's not, but... I wonder, you know, that that's sort of a, a member state, a member state-driven process. What is, uh, I guess, your view on Iran's nuclear program in terms of, um, like, do you do you expect the UN will be called to play a role in any sort of resolution that is, uh, you know, if, if a deal is to be struck, what role might the UN play? Well, it depends on how you see the UN. If you see the entire UN family, definitely there is a, uh, a very important by the agency in Vienna, the IAEA, IAEA International Atomic Energy Agency, yeah. because they will have to verify whatever the uh, six countries and Iran agree to. Uh, that's uh, what I think is going to happen, because we don't have any other verification agency. We're in New York, we're, we're mostly political-minded uh, people. We work out deals, we help countries to work out deals, but we do not get involved in practical implementation of those agreements. Um, honestly, I think uh, we're on a good track here with Iran. Uh, we, the UN, the Secretary General, is very supportive of what is happening in Iran. I think there is a real chance of uh, coming to terms with with Iran and agreeing on a on a agreement that will pave the way to normalization of relationships with the West. Because it's not only the nuclear issue that's at stake; it's really the the normalization of the uh, relationship with Western countries, which has been slacking a little bit for quite a while now. Uh, Iran is eager to beef that up. Uh, this is part of that strategy as a whole. So on the other side, there's also the, uh, the work that the IEA is doing, but that is separate from this, the, the, the deal that is being worked out by the E3 plus 3 and Iran. I do not like to, pre to refer to them to P5 plus 1 because the, the whole uh, sequence or the whole machinery started with uh, three European countries. Mm -hmm. and Back in like 2006, yeah, right? Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. 
And then we got all the nuclear weapon states or the P5 countries from the Security Council on board, but mm -hmm. I still like to refer to it they as were, each they, they, They're the original three. Yes, they were um, the original three. So outside of the potential breakout of Iran's nuclear weapon program, which, you know, is, is not a, uh, it's not destined to happen, but it is a potential breakout country, are there other places or regions or countries that you worry about as sort of next on the proliferation list? To be honest, I don't see any immediate uh, threat from that side. And honestly, I do see very little threat from Iran. Of course, they have the capacity, but so do other countries. But you have to remember that all these countries are under IEA safeguard, which means that all their activities in the field of nuclear uh, nuclear work is, is closely uh, scrutinized, verified, controlled by the agency in Vienna. Uh, people say Japan has a breakout capacity because they have like tons, hundreds of tons of plutonium. Yes, they do, but they're under safeguards. And there is, I mean, there's no way that any activity leading to the production of nuclear weapon would go uh, unnoticed. Uh, we have a lot of countries, even my own country, Belgium, we, we have, uh, we do a lot of work on nuclear issues and, and theoretically we could have a breakout capacity, but I mean, there's not a single person in Belgium who would think about going there. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's, that's true for the majority of countries. So again, uh, there are definitely technologically capable countries mm -hmm. to break out, to go, to, to pass the threshold. But the, 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 the control is such that uh, it's not bound to happen. Also, the repercussions from the international uh, community would be so severe on any country that would go to a breakout that uh, it would, I mean, it would strand in isolation. It would basically shoot itself, itself in the foot. Um, so you've been working on these issues for a long time. How much of a difference has Barack Obama made to these issues? You know, it seemed, you know, so his first year as president, during his first United Nations General Assembly, he chaired a Security Council meeting, the yes. first time ever that a president chaired, that a United States president chaired a Security Council meeting on nuclear disarmament. And he seems, at least in the first half of his administration, to have placed a priority on nuclear security issues, hosting these biannual summits as well. Um, how, I mean, how, how has that changed the game, if at all, uh, to the issues that, that you work on? I think Obama has come a long way uh, as a person and as a president to stimulate the thought process in terms of going towards uh, zero nuclear weapons in the world. I definitely think that he has uh, quite given a boost to the process. Unfortunately, the president doesn't work on his own. He is uh, tied by his own administration, he's tied by Congress. Uh, it is difficult for him to move uh, unilaterally as a president, but at least he has had the he has taken up the responsibility to show the international community that the United States is willing to consider going down the path of towards zero nuclear weapons. Uh, 
And how has that affected your work? I mean, you don't represent any member state. You no. sort of facilitate the work of member states. But if the you know, biggest nuclear power is, is committing itself to zero nuclear weapons, at least in, in theory, how does that change your, your day-to-day work? Well, it doesn't change too much my day-to-day work. The, the work that I do is still facilitating uh, negotiations, uh, facilitating universalization of instruments, uh, making sure that member states have the necessary information and necessary support to uh, to deal with with uh, nuclear disarmament arrangements. There's, for instance, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is going to its uh, next review conference next year. There are a number of issues that can derail the process next year. And one of the issues is, as a matter of fact, the slow rate of nuclear disarmament in the world. Um, France, the UK, they have gone to what they consider the bare minimum of uh, nuclear weapons in their view of, of deterrence. I do not fully agree with uh, the deterrence theory. I simply think that it's vastly overrated. Um, it's a political tool, but then somebody should explain to me, if it's only a political tool, why do we need like 16,000, 17,000 nuclear weapons in the world? Which are, I mean, they're capable to blow up this, this planet uh, ten times over. Uh, but again, if we look at, at the five nuclear weapon states under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, there is a serious concern among the non-nuclear weapon states that nuclear disarmament is too slow. And that's where President Obama has come in very positively. Uh, he's trying to, to boost the process. He's not always successful, but as I said, he's, his hands are tied too. So I fully understand it. But at least uh, he put a public face on the nuclear disarmament issue, uh, which is very good. The other issue that is bound to derail the uh, next review conference next year is the Middle East process. Mm-hmm. This is the idea of like the Middle East nuclear free zone? Exactly. This has to do with the uh, Middle East being uh, free of nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. Presumably the U.S., you know, as a you know, backer of Israel, is probably, I would imagine, is coming into these negotiations none too thrilled with having to argue this point? Uh, I never said that Israel did have nuclear weapons. Right. We only guess that right, they right, might right. have nuclear weapons as a starter. Then you are exactly right. Israel is not a party to the non-proliferation treaty. Uh, so you should assume that their interests are being taken care of by other uh, participants. Uh, I don't like to dwell too much on that because uh, that is a bilateral uh, arrangement. Uh, so in what ways might the question of a nuclear free zone in the Middle East derail the not the, 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 review What we agreed to in 2010 at the last review conference is that we would uh, hold a conference to start a process towards a nuclear weapon free zone in the Middle East. The conference was due to be held in 2012. The conference was never held. It's not held yet. We still have a facilitator who was appointed by the Secretary General in consultation with the countries of the region, uh, Mr. Lajava from Finland. And he is continuing ever since his appointment until now and is ongoing with his consultations to make sure that this conference takes place. 
the, the, the difficulty is uh, you need all the players around the table. It doesn't make sense if you have one important player in the Middle East who doesn't want to sit around the table. Uh, but there has been some evolution, and, and because of the very sensitive nature of these uh, these talks, I, I don't wish to dwell on those. But it, the Arab countries of the region have already said that the absence of a conference or the non-holding of a conference on this issue will have a serious impact on the next review conference in 2015. Mm -hmm. So we're doing whatever is possible uh, to to make sure it happens. I mean, there is an obligation in the 2010 outcome document to hold this conference, and Mr. Laayava is doing his best, and he's continuing to do his best. Then the, the the review conference is, is like summer of 2015. Conference is going to be held from uh, 27 April to 22 May. Okay, next year. So four weeks. They have they have less than a year to uh, hold exactly. that conference yeah. and not derail the next NPT exactly. review exactly. Uh, conference. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. Yes. Hi. My name is Sarah Crow. I'm a spokesperson at UNICEF headquarters in New York. Also chief of crisis communications. Uh, and I guess what crises have you up at night right now? Right. Uh, well, often it's the unexpected things like um, staff that might be taken away. It's those, uh, you know, in, our, we're in 190 countries around the world and many of them very tough areas, very hostile uh, places on earth. And so it's security, I suppose, would be the biggest concern for staff. Um, this year I've traveled to Pakistan and South Sudan and uh, seeing the conditions there, particularly in South Sudan, was quite... Um, quite impressive, you know, to see the how tough it is to operate in these conditions when you've got extremely difficult climates, uh, very hot or very cold or extremely, you know, right now they're in the rainy season. So uh, so they're flooded in the camps, the way our staff have to operate there as well. But also just, you know, the displaced, how people are, are managing to to live, to eke, uh, to eke their existence out uh, under, these situa under these sorts of circumstances. So, uh, so so you mentioned that that staff currently are, are facing pretty significant uh, threats and challenges, uh, and security threats to their own you know, their, their own person. I, I guess from from what I said, it seems that there has been a marked increase in attacks on humanitarian workers over the last say ten years or so. Is that something that you've experienced inside UNICEF? Yeah, I think what we're seeing now the pattern is you know if you go back, uh, I've been with UNICEF for ten years, and when I first joined, there were a lot of the big uh, the big kind of natural disasters, the tsunami, Haiti earthquake, Pakistan floods, well, earlier than that, the Pakistan earthquake as well. And what we're seeing now are much more protracted, um, complex, chronic type of emergencies. You know, Syria now has spread right around uh, the whole of the Middle East, effectively. And in the past week, we now have uh, a, a very uh, worrying situation in Iraq. When they were already in Iraq dealing with the Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, there was a case of polio this year. There hasn't been a case of polio in Iraq in uh, more than 15 years. So 
that's, it's kind of like a crisis within a crisis because it's a Syria crisis plus you've also got internal issues around the Kurdish, the Kurds wanting their own territory and you know within this kind of very fluid situation children are at the brunt of these crises Central African Republic and South Sudan what those two mean is effectively an entire uh, you know ten countries effectively in uh, in Africa Central and Eastern and Southern Africa are uh, are impacted by this crisis because it's the refugee spillover into Uganda, into Kenya, into Sudan, and then on the Central African Republic side, it's into Chad, into Cameroon. So it's never just one country; it's not just contained. It's not like you know a, a natural disaster, which is much much more easily contained, and it's also easier to raise awareness around a na- natural disaster. Probably, I would imagine funding. Uh, as well, um, you know, given all these sort of concurrent crises that are happening, which seem to be at an unprecedented level and scale, uh, with Syria being the by far the biggest and, and sort of most slow burning and, and affecting the most number of children, um, I guess how is UNICEF dealing with it? Are, like, are you scaling back elsewhere to deal with all these crises? No, because you can't rob from Peter to pay Paul, as it were, because then the ripple effect of that is even greater. But presumably, I mean, you know, UNICEF, you know, has a limited budget and it's funded by donations. How, Absolutely. How do you make these decisions? And as you funds? quite rightly say, when there is, when we have these kinds of protracted, politically complex crises, humanitarian crises, it is much harder to to fundraise and to create awareness of it. But we have to put out appeals, and that's what we do. So through our national committees, and UNICEF is is unusual in that we're we are part of the UN but we also have national committees in all the industrialized countries. So that means, for instance, in the U.S., you have the U.S. Fund for UNICEF and the U.K. Fund for UNICEF, and so from country to country it differs. And they are machines, you know. They're incredibly vibrant, energetic, dynamic. Uh, They operate more like an NGO, and they are the ones who create this sort of uh, fundraising awareness campaigns, and they have to add on to their normal work and, and, and create these appeals. So uh, we have to continue with our work, which is on the, de- on the development side, in middle-income countries, reaching the poor within rich, rich countries and the rich within poor countries. So it's much more of a mixed bag on the development side. And then within the humanitarian side, uh, we, we have to add on. We have to add on to our normal budget. We have to add on to our normal demands and bring in more people, bring in more resources. It's the only way we can cope. But it's strained, and people do... Uh, do feel the strain. So when you have a situation where you've got, you know, the concern as you were asking about um, staff operating in areas where you have high levels of, of insecurity and conflict, uh, and then on top of it, having to deliver much more, you know, having to do to, to go even further. So uh, th- these are tough conditions, no question about it. But we have to we have to do better, and we must. Uh, and can you just uh, in, in the time uh, that we have remaining just describe uh, UNICEF's 
response to the Syria crisis, which I know is, is, is obviously the biggest crisis yet in the world? It is, and 2013 uh, saw the biggest number of crises that we've ever had. So uh, for all UN agencies and all, UN, all NGOs, we're all facing that, that same problem. Uh, the way we operate, of course, the majority of our staff in any of these countries, and Syria included, uh, is through national staff and working through national NGOs. So through the Syrian Red Cross is a very critical point of contact. Uh, polio, as I mentioned, is... Uh, we have not seen polio cases in Syria for 15 years either. At the end of last year, in October last year, we saw the first outbreak. And what polio, what, why polio is interesting, why I'm picking it out of all the, the childhood diseases, and children don't generally die from polio, fortunately, but because for every one case of polio that is confirmed, you have 200 children infected. So what that means is that it can spread very rapidly and it cannot be cured, cannot be treated, can only be prevented. Unlike most of the other diseases that can be that can be cured, there's some form of medication that can be taken. So it's in a way the canary down the mine shaft. If you've got a case of polio in a country that hasn't had polio in so many years, has effectively eradicated polio, that's just symptomatic of how bad the situation is for children's health, for children's education as well. So it is just the tiny little tip of the iceberg. We want to throw in another metaphor of what really is going on under the surface and it's extremely concerning. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm Gary Fowley. I represent the International Telecommunication Union, which uh, is the UN Specialized Agency for Information and Communication Technology. Uh, we have, like all, we're a Geneva-based uh, UN agency, but we have, like all the Geneva-based agencies, they have a somebody here, an office here, and I'm, I'm that person here in New York at the UN. And so the ITU was created, you know, in the era of the telegraph, right? That's or, right. It's so 150 years ago next year. It, it's, it's a, I think, of one of the oldest, if not the oldest, it international, is the oldest. The oldest the international oldest, institution. It, the oldest international uh, multilateral organization, they say, and uh, the, certainly the oldest UN agency mm-hmm. predate the UN by eight so years. So old it, it, it predates the <coughs> so UN, absolutely, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't, it was originally the International Telegraph uh, Union. Union is kind of a bad name in some ways because people think of it as a labor union, but it's not. It was an association, organization of countries that realized when the telegraph was uh, created that there was a need for standards to ensure connectivity. Um, because at the time, you know, a telegraph got to the border, it would have to, if you think in modern terms, it would, it would have to be downloaded, decoded, encoded in another language. So they had to come to some terms of what the common language was and, and uh, standards for connectivity. And then with the creation of radio, uh, somebody had to keep uh, the, the frequency spectrum from, you know, causing harmful interference. So you'd have... Everybody needed a place on the bandwidth, uh, on the band sc- bandwidth scale, and uh, ITU started to manage that by treaty. And as that use of that bandwidth became more common for radio communications, broadcast, aerospace, um, we became the depository under treaty uh, for people to register bandwidth. 
bandwidths and to respect that bandwidth because you want to make sure that there's no harmful interference again, that planes stay in the air. And what You're not broadcasting live, but if we were broadcasting live, this is a specific bandwidth that uh, would be used. And then when satellites came along, somebody had to manage the satellite orbits, so we do that. But it wasn't until about 1980 when um, the IT realized that all of this technology and all this connectivity wasn't just for itself. It was for the purpose of development. It was a real key factor in economic development, social development. So before that, it was really just like just a, almost like a switchboard, a way for governments to communicate with each other about these very technical issues. Very te- yeah, they come up with the standards for connectivity and the ensuring that the the uh, you know uh, spectrum and the satellite orbits were respected. You know, as a, as a, an agency, uh, we we were placed to do that. So that's what we did. Uh, the development side of it, using that technology for uh, purposes of economic development, social development, didn't really come into play for anybody until about 1980. And then... And what does that look like? Or what did that well, look like in 1980? Well, here's was what, it actually, what happened. Telephone towers? Or? The, well, was, the, what real people realized is that there, people had, there wasn't equitable access to telephones and to, to the technology, to the radio signal, to the television signals, to satellite <clears throat> spectrum orbits. So in 1985, the ITU did a, a study called the uh, Maitland Report, and Sir Donald Maitland, who was a very credible British diplomat, was charged with looking at what impact technology generally, telecommunications specifically, had on development. And what they found, of course, was <clears throat> there was a big divide between the information haves and the information have-nots, and, and that its role as a, uh, a an enabler for other economic development had become increasingly important. So somebody had to address that. People had to have equitable access to the, the spectrum. But it, I, I kind of came, I wasn't, uh, I'm an economist by training and uh, was an economic journalist. And in, in 1985, I was reporting for The Economist. And I covered the ITU at this specific conference where they were dividing up satellite orbit space. And you know, the developed world wanted to take all the, the satellite space. It didn't matter, you know, basically prospecting in space, like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, grab this territory. Claim. In the developing world, which couldn't put a tin can into a five-foot orbit, saw the inequity to that. And, it, you know, insisted on having equitable access to that. So we've been working with developing uh, the developing world to ensure that they do get the the fair access to what really is a global uh, resource. The spectrum is a global, like water. Think of it as you know international um, seabed. This is like the international aerospace, uh, you know, electromagnetic frequency. We all own it, but none of us own it. We share it, uh, and it has to be done in in a way that everybody has. Equitable access to it. So, how are these issues manifesting themselves now in terms of, um, uh, you know, like a um, movement towards a more digital age, towards, uh, you know, mobile phones? Obviously, you know, every country on earth, you know, we're, we're in New York, I've had better cell phone service in rural Liberia than I have on the Metro North Line, yeah. or, you know, in it's Westchester true, County. It? Yeah. Um, I guess, how is that manifesting itself? Well, it, now in, in there, there's a really good book called The Victorian Internet. If you looked, if you went back and it, it's been out for a few years, but it looks at 
the issues that, with the invention of the telegraph, the issues that people dealt with in terms of equitable access and the impact it had on economics and how we're going to manage this and what the standards were for connectivity. And those same issues came up have come up with the global networks that have developed today. A couple of years ago, we renegotiated a treaty from 1985, 88, I'll get the, I'll have to check my dates. Um, but it became kind of a flashpoint for uh, issues like internet governance. Right. Um, but these are the issues. Yeah, it was, it was trying to control. Well, exactly. You weren't trying to control the internet. And anybody who understands how the internet actually operates from a technical perspective would see just how funny and silly that is. You know, anyone who knows anything about the U.S. would no, see. There you go. Exactly. But, but we do play a role. What, what, yeah. what people don't realize so what is, is that. So what is the role? Well, the role, there's, you know, four levels to the internet. One level is called the transport level. And that's where spectrum, the ability for this little mic that I'm talking to, on the, although it's on an RF mic, there was that frequency that it would use to translate to, um, you know, is on the spectrum code, the standards that allow connectivity. 80% of the data that moves on the internet move on telecommunication legacy lines. So there is a role. You know, it's it's kind of like the relationship between cars and, and uh, roads, you know. It, it, the, you have to communicate. You have to make sure that there's that the, the the roads can support the weight of the cars and the speed of the cars. There's got to be some uh, relationship between the two, uh, and. It, you know, we realize that you know, nobody, the internet, the internet is something that's grown exponentially, it's grown organically, it's been a, it's a fundamental tool for innovation, and nobody wants to, that, to change. Uh, and it's become um, a real, you know, uh, I would I would argue, and this is my personal opinion, that's really our first global utility. You know, in the past, water, transportation, power, you got to the border, you could, you know, turn off the power, stop the trains and planes and automobiles, you know, uh, turn the tap on the water. With the Internet, as it becomes more of a, a fundamental utility for other to, to service economic growth and income equity and all these, you know, important economic development uh, tools... <coughs> It doesn't, when it gets to the border, it's not so easy to control. You know, if it can't get through on satellite, it'll go through on cable or fiber. It's a bit like whack-a-mole. You know, if you know what the game is, whack-a-mole. You hit here and it goes down there and pops up somewhere else. Um, and, and these issues, we were concerned about. Uh, in 1998, the ITU and its big conference thought it was time for the world, including the ITU and all the stakeholders, private sector, civil society, governments, who are creating these international networks, important utilities, got together and looked at the issues that surround it. So we uh, did something called the World Summit on the Information Society, which was a UN, came to the UN as the, for, it was sort of the first uh, attempt to look at these issues like internet governance, cybersecurity, gender equity. There's 200 million fewer women that have access to the internet. And it has become a, a major driver of economic development and, and uh, really the three pillars of the, the UN system, you know, peace, security, and, and uh, development. So that, the issues that are 
surrounding the information society and, you know, are issues that come down again to basic connectivity. You, you know, you can have, uh, if you don't have access to this basic utility, you are missing out on the potential that it creates for uh, development. And the least developed countries as a group have really been the ones that have, you know, forced the issue. Because, you know, you and I, it's like breathing. You and I take it for granted. You don't think about breathing until you can't. And technology is the same way. You know, you're, you're sitting here looking at your, uh, your uh, you know, tablet. Well, it's not a tablet, so, you know. Pro. Uh, uh, you know, there you go. Yeah. But, it, it, you know, you take it for granted, you're going to have that connectivity. If you didn't have that connectivity today or your, your iPhone didn't work, you know, you probably couldn't do your job. In fact, you, I know you couldn't do your job. Uh, and, you know, if you're, you know, you understand when you don't have it, you understand how important a tool it is. So the, the least developed countries at the UN about in, in 2010 uh, have their 10-year action plan. And it's called the Istanbul Plan of Action. And in that action plan, they recognize ICT, Information Communication Te Te uh, Technology Networks, as infrastructure on par with water transportation power. To them, it's just as important. And these are countries and people are living on two bucks a day. But they see the importance of, of the technology as something that they need to invest on. And they set a target of universal access in the least developed countries by 2020 to the Internet because it's that important to them. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. I'm a German national that has worked for the UN for six years as communication specialist and I just got back from a six-month mission to Sierra Leone in West Africa. Uh, and you closed that mission down. So this is a, a used to be a peacekeeping mission and now has been sort of totally disbanded. Um, what was that process like? Um, actually, we had our first UN peacekeeping mission in Sierra Leone in 2001 and the UN was instrumental in closing in, in, um, in stopping the civil war in the country and since then there have been a couple of different UN peacekeeping missions UNAMSIL, UNOSIL and uh, in 2008 it changed into a peace building mission which means that it was um, led by the UN Department for Political Affairs instead of peacekeeping operations and uh, the UN Security Council decided a year ago um, to that, that Sierra Leone was stable enough and the government of Sierra Leone agreed um, that it was time to close that mission down and hand over to the UN country team that is still in the country to work on um, development issues. So on 30th of March this year, um, the last uh, Blue Barrett um, UN police left the country and uh, now the UN country team led by the United Nations Development Program is in charge. Of. So, I mean, from a UN perspective, this has to be seen as like a success story, right? I mean, this was was a country that in 2001 was in the midst of this horrible civil war known for you know, amputations and blood diamonds. I mean, that's really what got like, the term blood diamonds, right? It was from the Sierra Leone civil war in the early 2000s. Then there was a UN peacekeeping mission that stabilized the security situation. Uh, and now it's sort of, you know, like the, the level of UN involvement has steadily decreased. Is this sort of like a model for other countries and kind of like a model for UN peacekeeping? I absolutely think so, and I think we can draw a lot of lessons learned from it and one is certainly that it takes time I mean it was uh, it's almost 15 years now that the UN has, has uh, worked on, on building peace in the 
country together with a lot of other partners, the civil society and the government, of course, it's never just the UN who, who is doing it. But what was really instrumental was that we had 17,000 peacekeepers there in 2002. There was the highest number of peacekeepers at that time um, anywhere in the world to really make sure that the country felt safe, that there was no more um, havoc and, and misery created by, by the rebel forces. And uh, from then on to gradually, gradually um, establish also the infrastructures. And you need this, um, you need the, the basic safety and security to be able to, to establish um, health, education systems, justice system, um, parliament, etc. So um, it was a lesson learned that, um, that you need the blue helmets, but you always need to, to have a vision for long-term peace. And I think just um, gradually scaling up the involvement of other UN agencies in the country and a very, um, in, in a very integrated way was, was key in Sierra Leone. It was the first so-called integrated peace-building mission where the head of the peace-building mission was also the head of the other UN agencies on the ground. So they worked very closely on establishing a joint vision. They divided the tasks um, in, in a very um, uh, thorough way and worked closely together. So now um, the country still has a lot of problems, especially in dividing um, extractive resources um, fairly um, and also to build up a basic education, basic health um, system, fighting corruption at all levels. Um, that's still, and, and actually the country has the lowest life expectancy in the world and also the highest under five child mortality rate. So um, there is still a lot to do. But what I found inspiring, I traveled a lot in these countries and I talked to people and they love the UN. They, they see the UN as, as really the neutral objective partner that um, helped them to establish peace and, and they, they welcome us in the country and they, they, um, they felt that the UN was, was giving the, the um, the the real input to to the whole peace process. So um, the the people itself feel safe, but they see that there's still a lot to do, and they want to move forward. And I think it's great to to be part of this process. I guess what's interesting is that you know you know it took over ten years for the mission to start and then complete. Is that a normal time frame? Is that pretty realistic? So, like, the current mission, say, in Mali, you know, 10 years, that started last year, 10 years from now, will that, um, you know, will, will, will that sort of wind down? Is that a reasonable time frame? Um, I, I think you have to think long-term in those countries because there's a reason why the civil war broke out. It, it took already, I think, 20, 30 years. It was building up to get to this point, and, and you cannot expect to fix a, such a problem um, that that took so long in just two months, and um, and you really need to build up all the basic infrastructure, and it's it's extremely difficult in a country like Sierra Leone to even start anywhere because the whole civil sector was destroyed. The, there was no um, civil servant left. The education system is destroyed. You have to start building schools, and all all of us know how long it takes to get your high school diploma. So um, until you have this kind of um, basic um, ground to work from, uh, you need to invest in long-term development and, and really make sure that the, those countries are stable, that the, the econo economic growth is, is um, equal and that um, everybody benefits from it. And uh, I think it is a lesson for Mali, CAR and, and any other um, big emergency right now that you really need to think long-term before anything can, can really change and you can um, leave that country um, on their own. 
and um, in Sierra Leone we still need to get involved and it's just a different um, way we are working there now but um, I still think that that the UN and, and our partners are playing a very crucial role in, in building the peace in the country. Uh, well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, thank you. of the United Nations Capital Master Plan. Uh, so what is the Capital Master Plan? I know what it is. I bet the folks out there don't. The folks out there might not know what the Capital Master Plan is, but they are paying for it, and so are you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, the Capital Master Plan is the big once-in-a-lifetime renovation project for the UN headquarters here in New York. We started in 2008, and uh, this September will be finished. You'll be finished this September. Uh, you seem to have doubts about that. Well, this is so, you know, I, I've been hearing about the Capital Master Plan for a while, and it involved significant upgrades to the UN building. Actually, first tell me about the UN building. It's, it's sort of architectural history, and then we'll discuss why it might need uh, updating. Yeah, the UN building was uh, opened between 1950 and 1952, and uh, the Secretariat building, our high-rise building, is the prototype of the modern office building. It's uh, an iconic building that started uh, what's called, what's been called uh, mid-20th century modern architecture, an international style that uh, was very befitting for the, the fledgling United Nations. Uh, the UN couldn't quote from uh, from older style, from, from a discredited architectural style, so they invented something new. So we are working in an architectural icon which was built very well uh, back in the late 40s, early 50s with the best American engineering had to offer in those days. But after, after 60 years, it was high time for a complete renovation. And so what were some of the problems uh, that required such a renovation? Well, I mean, if, uh, heating, air conditioning, uh, plumbing, wiring, all usually has a, a useful life cycle of maybe 30 years if it's done well well and the 30 years were well passed also the United Nations uh, when they built their building had a little bit more than 50 members and they had no idea what a busy organization these United Nations would become and what a what a busy hub the UN headquarters would be just to give you a number the UN headquarters was designed to accommodate the needs of 75 members. Well, and you and your listeners certainly know that today the UN has 193 members. Also, UN headquarters was designed to accommodate around 700 big conferences a year. We have 8,000 conferences a year. And before the renovation, this was all handled with the infrastructure that was built, you know, just to handle 700. So you can imagine how stale the air was in the big conference rooms after a busy day of meetings. Uh, another issue, security. Uh, terrorism, as we know it today, was not much of an issue when the UN headquarters was designed and built in the early 1950s. We are very exposed here uh, uh, in Manhattan, so we had to upgrade our security quite a bit. Asbestos. Uh, please feel free to, no, to, no, to breathe. This, this room is free of asbestos. 
asbestos. We got rid of all of it. But we could fill a football field with 15 feet of asbestos-containing material. That's how much stuff we had in this building. So you're describing just a massive renovation. How much did all this cost? It cost uh, our projection, since we are not quite finished, is that at the end of the day, uh, the total cost to complete will be a little bit more than $2.1 billion. Uh, who pays for it? Uh, you, the listeners. Uh, the member states pay for it. Uh, there was a special assessment according to the assessment scale. You member states uh, have to contribute to the general <coughs> budget of the UN. U.S. always pays 22 percent. It's capped at 22 percent. And, uh, yeah, 78 percent was paid by, by the rest of the world. Uh, a good business for the U.N., if I may say so, because where do we spend our money? We spend it right here uh, in the middle of New York. Our labor force is uh, 100 percent American, uh, mostly from New Jersey and New York, and uh, also our, our material comes mostly from, from U.S. suppliers. So uh, more than 90 percent of our budget we, we are spending here. So who uh, said so all the member states were uh, meant to pay for this? Are there any deadbeats? Anyone anyone uh, haven't paid up their special contribution? For who the wants to talk about deadbeats on the radio? Uh, well, there yeah. are no, the, the, the member states really really paid well, with, with a very, very few exceptions. But uh, we, we never had a problem with the member states paying because they, they understand. They understand. They, they work in this building. And we uh, did something when we started what we called a dirty tour. We took the diplomats, the ambassadors, and uh, took them down to the basement and showed them, you know, how the building looks behind behind the curtain. And they were they were impressed and they understood that this renovation had to be done. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. Missed that possible. not, I have even more interviews with other very interesting UN officials that I will save for a later date. For now, though, thank you so much for listening. And if you made it this far, it means you should probably leave a review on iTunes. I mean, you listen to about six interviews with wonky UN officials. It means you love this stuff. And if you love this stuff so much, uh, it would really help if you left a positive review on iTunes. So please do so. And thanks for listening. We'll see you later. Bye.